and welcome to The Gray Area, where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news and reviews, and focus on the interrelationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 95th episode in a weekly series called PAX Provisions. Here with me is Steve Swink, game designer, speaker, and author. Last week's episode was a mashup of the I Remember It Better podcast, an interview I did there, MegaCon, and Gaming News. So welcome to Steve, and thank you for very much for being on the show. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I uh, am eternally surprised when anyone wants to talk to me about anything, but uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. I'm always like, whatever. A but, noted uh, speaker. Isn't yes, it surprising yeah. people want to talk to you? And that was, well, <laughs> that talk was put together in uh, four days. Yes, I want hours. you to tell that story then, because that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was cool. That was fun. Mike Todd got banned from the U.S. and couldn't give his talk at... And then I had to sort of step in, but it's cool because I spent the last year and a half working on educational games and thinking a lot about that space and thinking about how to actually realistically get games into classrooms and why you would want to do that and what games are good at for teaching and so on. So what what's the story on how he got banned? That's really kind of unusual. Um, do you know? It involves which class of work visa he was trying to apply for. There's the T1 and then some other type of visa and. He wanted some other type of visa, and he applied for that one, but game designer is not a thing on that type of visa, or something about his paperwork, and then he just had an unfortunate run-in with the border guards. I mean, it turns out it's basically subjective when you get to the border, right? It's, if the person wants to screw you, they can, like, they can just do that, and then... Oh, wow. Yeah. He, he showed up to the border, his paperwork was not quite in order. They said, oh, it's okay, you know, in a friendly way, come back tomorrow. And he came back the next day, and they're like, what, what is this? You tried to cross yesterday, you're changing your story, blah, blah, blah. What? Yeah. Okay. It totally, it's like something that would happen in a movie. It was pretty obnoxious. This frightens me, because I have people that are trying to get, like, visas and apply for citizenship. This is, this is a frightening story. Tell them to bite the bullet, get a lawyer, and make sure they have their paperwork correct and sorted out and they're applying for the right type of visa because if you try to ad hoc it, you can get banned from the U.S. Okay. See, Fane, you're in the chat room. This is for you. <coughs> okay. I mean, that happened to Justice, right? Justice was going to play at GDC. Oh, I didn't hear that. And they apparently made the mistake of saying that they were being paid. <laughs> Which is what you don't want to do, because then they'll say, oh, you're coming to the U.S. to work, are you? And then if the border guard doesn't like you, then you're screwed. Oh, wow. So we had to, we watched Skrillex spin fat beats. <laughs> I love Skrillex. I did not know. <laughs> it was, I mean, he didn't, like, play any of his music. He was just like, yeah, yeah, Major Lazer, And then he was like, <laughs> He didn't actually, what? He didn't play music, he just yelled and... Well, no, I mean, he, he did. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. That was a good thing. I mean, it's an experience that I will never have again, right? Because I didn't make Minecraft, so oh. I'm lucky enough that Notch invited us to be in, like, the super swanky VIP area. It felt really weird, though. It's like, you know, all the indies who live on this crazy budget and eat ramen or whatever, and we're, like, in the super <laughs> fancy VIP area, you know? This is a reward for all the hard work you've been doing. Yeah. And you say indies band together, you know? It's nice. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. It was cool. And we sort of like looking down on all the people, like the club people. And there's like the models that they hired. Things. Yeah, they, so that's my that's my club <laughs> that's dance. That's their club dance? Okay. That's as good as you're going to get. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I can do the T-Rex in space. Oh, do they um, do it? Yeah. <laughs> I can do the T-Rex in the club. I didn't get kicked out because I was in the VIP. <laughs> <laughs> this does not happen at PAX. No. No. This is like a, must be a GDC have- thing. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, it all happens because of Notch, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that too. All right. 
Let me get to the questions and okay. <laughs> we'll ramble. We'll ramble some more. Okay. Chat room, um, we will have questions at the end. So if you want to ask something and more people show up, there will be questions at the end. But for now, just hang on and uh, all that. So let's do news of the week, which you kind of did a little bit of, but some more <laughs> sure. news of the week. Uh, yeah, I mean, GC was a trip. Just finished doing a, a you know, FADC from PAX into GDC combo, which was pretty brutal. I, oh, I don't know if I think I'll do that again. I hope they don't schedule them back to back again like that, but That's I don't know. It's fun. Yeah. Why would they do that to us? It was horrible. Um, yeah, it was good. And so I, I have been working really hard for a month to get my new game ready for GC and it went over a storm. Everybody really loved it. And, and, you know, I completely burned down all the code and recoded it from scratch starting a month ago and have a totally new art style. Okay. And so I was very nervous about showing it to people, but the, the response was universally positive. This is in Biggin? Is that what we're talking it's about? Scale. Scale, okay. Yes. I definitely want to ask you about that, too, toward the end. Sure. I'm trying to put the order of events together for your life, and it's, <laughs> sure. it's a little difficult. Um in some in some stuff, kind of and, like, uh, <laughs> like designing first, then book, then educational games. Kind of what I'm guessing. I don't know if the book came first. I yeah, no, no. It was like uh, I went to school for game design because that's all I ever wanted to do. Because I I used to like program games on my dad's Commodore 64 and stuff. Okay. Um, let's put this under childhood I, questions. Let's ask you childhood questions. So childhood well, games that you did, you programmed as yes. a child. Wow. Yeah. Well, like in fifth grade, I made a, an RPG in Logo Writer called Death Quest. Okay, what was this about? Was yeah, and my dad made fun of me. He was like, so you're questioning... For death? I didn't want to say it. <laughs> Shut up, dad! <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> didn't want to say it. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, so then, then I just, you know, out of school, I got a job at this company called Tremor Entertainment, mm -hmm. which was actually really cool, because it was basically the design team from StarCraft. Oh. So it was like Robert Jordovich, uh, James Finney, Jeffrey Vaughn, those guys, um, Eric, and we just... They were making this like crazy proto God of War thing. It was like a a brawler fighting game RPG with combos where you played as like this cool goth chick with all these crazy powers and but she wasn't like a titty girl, which I think is maybe why it got cancelled. What? She was like actually dressed like a reasonable human being. Okay. And it was amazing. It sounds yeah, it was like really a cool. pretty neat game. Not it's a lot called of called the theme, ironically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because it was never seen. Never seen. <laughs> yeah. It was an Xbox One title. Hmm. Does this happen a lot? Because, I mean, I realize the news kind of of the day is LucasArts and closing down the entire yeah. you know, studio for the new Star Wars game. And it seems like a, a lot of games kind of get to the point where either the studio closes and you never really get to finish the game or they just decide for some reason. Uh, it's a lot of work and a lot of pay and a lot of time into a game that just ends and then it just goes away forever. You know, what happens to a game like that, like scene? Yeah. I mean, I, we, okay, so, I mean, the story of the end of Unseen is really weird because it's like Microsoft sunk a few million dollars into this thing and we'd been working on it for three years or something like that. And then I showed up one day and my key didn't work at the lock anymore. And the CFO was like, yeah, sorry, there's no paychecks, get your stuff and go home. 
and they had an armed security guard that like walked everyone up to their desk to make sure they weren't going to steal stuff and stuff. So I'm like scraping all my CDs at the time <laughs> into a into a you know plastic bag or whatever. But some of the Bulgarian programmers like razzle dazzled the guard and like stole a dev kit. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so we were trying to save the project. So we had a copy of all the code and stuff like that, but just nobody wanted to pick it up. Uh. It was cool. I mean, I think it would have been really cool. It probably did need, like, another two years of work, which is probably why nobody wanted to keep working on it. Mm -hmm. But the story that we were told at the time is that the CEO stole a bunch of money from Microsoft and, like, skipped to Florida. Oh. Where, I don't know if you're aware of, in Florida, they have property laws that state that if you own property, that's the one thing that can't be taken from you. So the government can take away all, all your money and all your assets, but not your property. So I guess you just, like, buy a big house. Yeah, I guess he's like, a bunch of money into a house in Florida or something. Wow. Yeah. So that was my first game industry experience. That was kind of a trip. <laughs> well, then does, does the uh, kind of copyright law involve the concept of the game, or can you make something similar, you know, as long as you change the name of the protagonist, and it's not called Unseen, but it's about, you know, it's called Visibility, I, I don't know, whatever you call yeah, it. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, honestly, I don't know, but I think that with games, the the, like, you know, untold truth that nobody wants to mention is that no one has any idea how to actually make a game. And so when they have a game that's really successful, they're like, okay, 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 this is awesome. All right, we're going to make five of these, right? Because because <laughs> they're just so terrified and they sunk so much money into this thing. And I don't think anyone wanted to pick it up because it wasn't like a proven project, right? If it had been, if we were Bungie and it was Halo or something, right. obviously somebody would have picked us up. But you know, it was just like this unproven IP, un, you know, brand new thing. Yeah. I think people would have liked it. I mean, it was like a pretty fun game already. You know, well, I suppose we've been developing it for a while, but, you know, at, at its earliest stage, it was still pretty fun. Mm -hmm. It looked gorgeous. It was awesome. But yeah, I think these games just fall into this weird purgatory and, and games are not like books or films where where someone can sort of take over midstream and... and like do reshoots and fix the thing or recut it or whatever. It's like if the code is half finished and all the people who worked on that code are gone, then it's kind of like, what's the point? You know, we might as well just make a different game. I guess that seems just like a lot of investment and, you know, time and people's kind of hard work as far as their attachment to go into something to see it go down the drain and never. Oh yeah. I mean, it was heartbreaking, but I guess that's kind of the brutal reality, right? It's like, it doesn't really matter how hard you worked on something. If it's not good, it's not good. And the problem with games is they don't really get good until the very end. Ah, okay. I definitely want to talk about some of these concepts that you're talking about now because they factor into the, the authorship in the book that I was reading about. But I want to start sort of at the beginning more. Sure. <laughs> and <laughs> so you're programming as a child. Do you play any games? It's the favorite oh, yeah. things that you did as a kid? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There, so there was a game that actually inspired me to become a game designer. Uh, it was called Sea Route to India, and I haven't even been able to find a ROM of it. But it was it was kind of like Oregon Trail. It was basically you were uh, trying to find a sea route from Europe around the Horn of Africa to India, so you could have, you know, and so it was like this brutally difficult thing where your ship would get shipwrecked all the time, or you know, and you had to hunt whales for food. And there was like this whale hunting mini game, and the whales would go back and forth, and you had to harpoon them, and they turn upside down with X fries and flood at the top. <laughs> Okay. I can see why aspects of that would be mixed, but it sounds a very educational game kind of in itself. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, that was the game that I was like, wow, I really want to make games after playing that. Cool. 
So how did you end up deciding that you want to be a game designer, and did you go to school for this? How did this come about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I got out of high school, and I was like, well, I can kind of program, and I can kind of draw. And what I really want to do is make games, so I didn't really know how to do that, because it wasn't... I mean, this was 1998, so... Okay. Um, this was before there were real serious game schools. So I went to this college called Cogswell, which was the only fully accredited college in the U.S. that had a major in game design. And it happened to be right up the road from where I lived. Oh, and lucky. Yeah, it was in Sunnyvale, and I was in, uh, in Cupertino, California. Nice. Right next to the NASA base, the Blue Cube, which is apparently the number two new target in the U.S., which I found out later. I live uh, near Three Mile Island, so I feel your pain. Okay, there you go. Yeah. It's nice to know you won't have to right. suffer long, right? <laughs> Last vaporized, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> nice. I also have a very strange um, fear of Silent Hill, but that's a whole other story. Strange fear of Silent Hill the game? Yeah, because of the whole siren that you hear all the time here. Like, I don't know. You hear, is it like an accident that it goes off, or is it, it a... It goes off testing a lot. Like They make that okay. siren, okay. and also for some reason fires. Uh, like The fire department chooses to incorporate the meltdown sound of, of a nuclear power plant as their warning that there is a fire in the area, which I don't think is a really smart choice, but that... Yeah, they... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a fire department troll. That's not really the agency to be messing around with. Yeah, like, uh, should I pop that pill right now, or is that no, no, it's a fire? Okay. Yeah. yeah Save yeah. my thyroid. Cyanide pill. <laughs> I do. I have a thyroid pill that's supposed to keep you from being nuclear. Like, if the radiation is far enough away, your thyroid will preserve you for like half an hour, so you can run to the Poconos or whatever. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. I'm glad that I don't often have to think about that. I don't think about it very often either. <laughs> I know that if the, you know, I'm out in Arizona, if the Colorado River runs dry one day, you have about five days to get out of town before there's just no water anywhere because you're in the middle of the desert. Oh, yeah, mm, that would also be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're like a week away from apocalypse at any moment in Arizona. <laughs> a long week away. Yeah, and everybody's ready to. Everyone has like guns buried in the desert and stuff like that. So that they can fight the zombie hordes or the other people that are looking for their water? So they can exhaust themselves digging in the desert and save the rest of us the trouble? I don't know. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Where was those damn guns? Oh, it's hot. <laughs> should I had that water. Yeah. Yeah, you should bury the water somewhere yeah, far, far below ground. <laughs> well, I feel there's a lot of people in Arizona who don't think things through. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of, I think that's how civilization started. It's a little natural selection right there. People not thinking things through. I'm there because trying to live in California and start a game company is very expensive. Ah, I can see. Northern California is about the most expensive place you can live in the U.S. It seems like it's quite a hub, though. I mean, there's tons and tons of events that seem to occur in California that none of us can get to on the East Coast. Oh, yeah, dude, it's awesome. you got to get out for GDC sometime. It's totally amazing. Someday. When I'm not poor, I'll be. It'll be on my list. <laughs> All right. So you're going to school. You're learning about game design, and you graduate from school. So what's your first gaming job? Oh, that was Tremor. Yeah. Tremor. So, okay. Yeah. That's so that's yeah. kind of disappointing. That you're all excited, and this is a game you're working on, which I'm also showing, by the way, in uh, Twitch. Okay. Yeah. I'm I can't using... watch the stream because it's a little. It's far enough behind me that it's just yeah. Out the brain. That's okay. That's also mirror me. Oh man. Cat <laughs> hair. Oh. Well, I, st I stole your presentation from PAX, so I'm oh, showing funny. aspects of it. Um, so where does Enemy Airship come in? Oh, okay, so there was Tremor, and then I got a job working as a game designer on Tony Hawk, on Tony Hawk Underground at Neversoft. 
Yes, which you also had a funny story about at PAX. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, because I, so I worked there and I was like, you know, I worked for two years on Unseen and uh, I wanted to ship a game, right? Like, that's my dream to be a game designer. Like, oh my God, okay. This company for sure is going to ship a game. They've done four of these games in the last four years. For sure, they're going to ship this game. Um, but we get to like the end of it and I'm all fat and I'm all like, got holes in my shirt and my <laughs> hair's all long. I'm working all night long and eating food. <laughs> kind of have a beard like I have right now, but a little bit more scraggly. I'm going feral after GC. That's I usually do for a week or two. I just go purely feral and run wild in the fields. Um, <laughs> and then, so I got to the end of it, and it was like this brutal crunch at the very end. This happens at every big game studio, and we get to the end, and you know, I I fixed like some thousands of bugs, and you know, it's just just insanity. Like 16 hour days, get up at eight in the morning, get to the office. You know, leave at three, and rinse, repeat, no weekends. Yeah. And so we get done with the game, and we ship the game, and we ship it on like 20 SKUs or something. But anyway, so I'm just like, uh, like haggard, just destroyed <laughs> fucking thing after all this, you know, two years of heartbreak and then a year of just crushing myself on this thing. And there's like these two skater kids that come in and they have the chocolate ice cream cone and they're like fighting over it and they're like, oh, which game should we buy? Oh, Tony Hawk. Oh, no, that game sucks. And I'm just like, oh, no, God. What have I done with my life? <laughs> so then a couple of weeks after that, I was no longer working at Neversoft. And then, uh, and then a couple of friends of mine had just started a game studio, friends from college out in Arizona. And, uh, that was Flashbang Studios. So that's where all the Raptors and stuff came from. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, you can just follow along in my presentation. That's a really good idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> some of it. Um, Flashbang Studios and Enemy Airship, I was getting confused because you're not technically listed as employed for Flashbang Studios. I wasn't sure. Like, Enemy Airship has all... It's like a nice page that has everything on it. You can see all the games. You can see... Um, let's see if I'm there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, so I was like a, a technically a co-owner of Flashbang Studios for a bunch of years. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, so so we we did uh, we tried to make casual games, which turned out to be a terrible idea because th this was back when there wasn't an indie scene at all. Okay. This was like two thousand three, and we were like, okay, casual games, that's really popular, and we we want to make games, but we, there's like three of us or four of us, and so we're gonna make casual games because that's something that somebody you can make with three people and you can make money off of it, right? And we learned a really important lesson from doing that. Oh, uh, two really important lessons. One, we fucking hate making casual games. Oh, really? Why? <laughs> they, they're so fun. The ones you have. All evolving well, dinosaurs. Well, those, I mean, the ones that are on Blurs.com, I would not consider casual games. When I say casual games, I mean like match threes and word games and oh, stuff. Oh, okay, okay. So there was a game called Beasley's Buzzwords that was mostly made by Matthew and Shag, uh, Mike Heim, who has a giant awesome beard and went on to become sort of the senior character artist at Epic. Ooh. So all that, all that awesome artwork that you see in like the... Uh, tech demos and Gears of War 3 and stuff. A lot of that's him. Oh, wow. Yeah. He ball. He's really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he did that. He did that um, amazing Guile and Chun Li and uh, M. Bison, like those amazing Street Fighter characters that everybody loves. Yeah. The Super best ones. I'll look that up so I can link it uh, then. Anyway. Um, yeah, so we were making like these casual games. So we made a game called Beasley's Buzzwords, which was a, a spelling game and. Then we made, um, a, you know, a bunch of other sort of match three kind of that sort of thing. And then we're just like, we're not really making money off of this stuff and we kind of hate it. So we're going to start just like making awesome stuff. <laughs> okay. Uh, here, I pasted it to you. Oh, I should paste it into the Twitch chat. Here, I'll grab it too. 
yeah, so we made these control games, and it was cool, and, um, you know, we just realized we weren't really going to make money off of it, and we hated it, and so we were like, cool, all right, we're, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to make what we want to make, and so then that's where, like, Raptor Safari and, uh, you know, Minotaur China Shop, and, like, all that funny, silly stuff came from. Nice. Now, you've had some interesting names for places that you've worked for. I mean, Neversoft, you had the Unseen, all the rest. Where does Enemy Airship come from? Oh, um, it, I think it entered my brain from a Do May Say Think song. Okay. It's Goodbye Enemy Airship, the something, something, something. Okay. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a band called Do May Say Think that's really cool. Um, and anyway, it entered my brain at some point, and it was... Uh, me and Scott Anderson were forming a company to create Shadow Physics, which is a, a 3D, 2D platformer thing where you're like a two-dimensional shadow being that runs along walls in a 3D world, and you yes. can like push on objects, push on shadows, and stuff there like that. There it is. I'm finding it on your presentation. There you go. Yes. It's like this, you have perfect accompaniment. Yes. Yeah, so it was cool. Um, yeah, that's where Enemy Airship came from. So after we kind of made all the Blurst games, and then we gave them away for free, and then we were like, oh, crap, we actually like need money. So, so <laughs> no, then we it's start an unfortunate like, reality, isn't it? Yes, right. <laughs> and then we tried to we tried to sort of uh, we released like the Blurst pack where you could buy like the downloadable versions of all the games and stuff, but it wasn't it was sort of had gone past already, and and we were employing a model that wasn't necessarily sustainable in terms of making. We made a game every eight weeks for an entire oh, year. Oh wow, basically. productive! So all those games on Blurst were made in that that mold, basically. Blurst is and, amazing. I I feel like maybe it's just. Uh, nobody knows about it enough because I'm telling you, Off-Road Velociraptor Safari, I had so much fun playing that today. Hey, all right. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I, although, really Morningstar, is that supposed to be the Triceratops tail? Like, what, what's the relationship to the Triceratops <laughs> sitting in the back there? Uh, I think it's just the Triceratops skull that's sitting in the back there. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Although, and I have to tell you, starting with the ramp, this was frustrating to me. I could not get the orange ball at the beginning when you start with the ramp. It made me feel like a failure. I had to run around and like run over things first for a while. Did you get the boost? Yes. The, the boost is the key mechanic there, I think. Now I see. The ramp is what I couldn't do it because I didn't have boost. Yeah, you got to boost off that ramp. Okay. And then, actually, if you look in the blurst flicker in the bottom right there, you can see some of the screenshots from the HD version that they were working on. Let's see. I don't know if you're seeing this, but... It was fun. And then, of course, yes, Jetpack Brontosaurus. Now, <laughs> you, you seem to make these games like that and like um, Minotaur China Shop. There's some sort of social aspect where there's like a, a commentary on, on society in these games, which is kind of strangely integrated with the game. <laughs> What's the deal? Um, I think that's just our weird collective consciousness amongst the worst people. It was myself, Matthew Wagner... Ben Reese, those those two are now working on the this black and white beat 'em up roguelike thing called Aztec, which is really neat. Okay. If you haven't looked it up, um, so those guys, um, yeah, you can find it. But yeah, so it was, it was those guys, and then it was uh, my friend, my friends Matt and Adam Meckley, who were like these crazy freak genius kids, and they both went on to to get PhDs and stuff. So Adam's in Wisconsin, and Matt is getting a, an astrophysics PhD from ASU. Mm. Yeah. So whenever I need to, to back up an opinion, I'll just be like, well, my friend who's an astrophysicist says. <laughs> That's exactly what you want. You want that friend. It validates everything. Yeah. 
I'm showing them. He's the writing programs that are on the Hubble, like actually research programs that are directing the the way that the Hubble is operating, which I think is just completely amazing. <laughs> you have all these friends who are going on to do this like epically successful stuff, and then you're acting like no one wants you to speak at places. Come on, <laughs> you guys are well, all going like, on to oh, do man, things. All, all these friends doing neat stuff. Um, yeah, so. So basically our brains are weird, and so it's like we made this game where you run over ragdoll velociraptors, and it's really important that they be feathered velociraptors, and we got this really great um, email from a from a uh, paleontologist saying, you know, like one of the preeminent paleontologists in the field is saying, like, yeah, right on for the feathered velociraptors, all right, you know. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, no, it was great. It was really fun. And so it's like, okay, so who's going to be piloting the, or who's going to be driving the Jeep? Right? And I'm like, well, it should be a raptor. Well, it can't just be a regular raptor. Okay, well, it has to be like a raptor with a monocle and a pith helmet. Okay, all right. So now it's like a subtle commentary on British imperialism. So the, the <laughs> raptor in the Jeep is subjugating the native raptors. and I see. There's yeah. this whole fiction about, about Maximum growing the raptors. Yeah. Nice. We, we discovered that there's like a really fine line between, you know, concepts which are really funny and weird and awesome and things that are just like ridiculous and dumb so people would always it would be it'd be on like rock paper shotgun or something be like jetpack brontosaurus you know velociraptor safari like what's next then be like they'd make up something it'd be like triceratops swift boat or whatever (laughs) (laughs) and then it was the best one was friendly dad it was it was like off-road velociraptor safari jetpack brontosaurus Friendly, friendly dad. dad. Okay. <laughs> there's no, there's like, no dinosaur in there. It can't happen. <laughs> we, we laughed about that one for a really long time. <laughs> what what is with I, the dinosaur <laughs> obsession, I have to say? All of us love dinosaurs. I don't know. I mean, I just giggle with glee. I Whenever I go to a city, I always go to the dinosaur museum. Are you <clears> going to see Jurassic Park 3D this weekend? Hell yeah. I thought so. We were watching it last night, actually. <laughs> There's something funny about the brontosaurus when you turn off the jetpack and it crashes to the ground. The way it sort of bounces in sort of a rubbery way, it's, it's just amusing. I don't know why. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, and, that's mostly due to, to Adam Meckley and Matthew doing like a funny ragdoll brontosaurus thing. That one, that, one, that game was interesting. It, did, it never quite came together, but it was still really funny. It's funny to crash them into stuff. <laughs> Let's move on to the book. So what inspired you to write a book? When when did I write a book? Yeah, like, why did you say suddenly I have to be an author and I have so much money to talk about game design? Uh, Well, I read this thing one time that was like, successful people will make a list of the things they want to have done in one year, five years, ten years, fifty years, and a hundred years. And so I was like, okay, that sounds cool. So then I wrote down a bunch of stuff I wanted to do, and one of the things I wrote on my five-year list was to write a book. And... Then I started writing a lot of stuff for my website, which is just my name.com. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this article that was like principles of game feel. And I had this idea that you could take like the principles of animation and try to apply that sort of a, you know, subjective aesthetic rules thing. Like the fascinating thing about the principles of animation, I don't know if you're aware of what the principles of animation are. No. Okay, so there's Disney, right? And there's like the golden age of Disney, and there are these guys. We called them the, the ten old men or something like that. Nine old men. That's not very Nine flattering. No, it's not. I guess not. <laughs> well, more epic came, name. They weren't. They were doing awesome work. But anyway, these guys are generally credited with developing the techniques that led to like actual film quality animation. 
So these are the the main animators uh, who did Snow White and all these like really famous Disney films, and they basically revolutionized animation. Um, and this is people like um, Frank and Ollie. Frank and Ollie.com, I think is the site. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson. So there, there were nine of them. Anyway, so they basically were like inventing animation, uh, modern animation out of thin air. And as they were doing this, they came up with this set of principles. And what was interesting about them is they were sort of aesthetic principles. And you would think that, you know, aesthetics are sort of subjective, right? Like to each their own kind of thing. You wouldn't think you'd be able to come up with like principles that hold true for all animation. But it turns out that it, in the way that a human beings perceive a series of frames, you know, played over time, turning into, you know, one animated, right? Like there's an actual physiological threshold at which, which a series of Im still images translates into a human brain into like a single object moving. So What's very funny about that, that because as you're doing that with your hand, there's some lag and it's doing like a single, <laughs> yeah, carry on. Perfect. Excellent. Um, <laughs> But it, what, what's fascinating is that you'd think that that wouldn't be, that would just be a matter of taste, but it turns out that there are all these principles like maintaining the volume of an object and so on, that just, if your animation doesn't do this, it's a bad animation. Okay. And if it does do this, it's a good animation. And this, everyone who learns how to animate learns the 12 principle. Hmm. Right. I, I learned the 12 principles in a 2D animation class when I was in college. Like everyone who learns how to animate does this. Anyway, so. What's fascinating that to that about me, you know, to me about that is that just like that that is even possible that, that there you can look at human cognition and you can look at a medium and say, okay, if you do this, it will be better. Um, anyway, so I just thought, hey, I wonder if that's true of physically controlling something in a game. I lost the video here. I turned it off just for a few minutes so it could unlag itself, but I will turn it back on. Uh, that's cool. Okay. So yeah. Yeah, anyway, so I just I just thought that that was interesting and fascinating, and that direction led me to writing uh, Principles of Virtual Sensation, which is an article that was published in Kama Sutra and on my website, and I basically just tried to sort of one-to-one -one map it and find what would be the principles of virtual sensation, you know, as I was calling it then. And then um, somebody saw that at Morgan Kaufman, and they were like, hey, that's cool, want to write a book? And I was like, sure, sounds good. <laughs> Not not knowing, not fully appreciating the horrible pain it is to write a book. It seems like a, a large scope of work. I don't know how long the actual book was. I was kind of just flipping through it on Amazon. Although I did learn the word haptics, which I thought was interesting and educational. Um, there you go. Yes. And yeah, it, so it was, it's 160,000 words, I think. Mm, okay. And how long did it take you to write the so whole thing? It's like two years, something like that. Okay. And I just couldn't believe how much work it was. I mean, I, I thought like, oh, you know, I've written a 50-page paper before. It's just like six of those. And that took me, you know, like a month to write. So it'll be like six months. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Actually, a couple of friends of mine were just working on a book right now. And, and they, you know, they, they're like, hey, what do you think of the abstract? And I was like, you must not. You must not agree to write a book. It's a terrible idea. It's just going to crush you. And just a couple of months ago, they were like, "Yeah, you were totally right. We're gonna, we're probably not gonna finish it." <laughs> uh, the response seems to be good. I mean, they're actually using us as curriculum, I believe, for for schools and game design. So that must be sort of uh, 
I guess, affirming to know that other people are looking at your stuff as, as a teaching tool that's kind of helping future generations learn how to do games well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the impetus to, to write it, right? Like, you don't write a book about game design if you're trying to be rich. That's not a thing. <laughs> that's If that's what motivates you, fine. Go write a self-help book or whatever it is. Um, write fiction about young adult vampire or werewolf teens or something. That design but, games. Yeah, the design games. Hey, that's not bad, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, some of the ideas in the book looked like... I was interested in the idea of fast game response and polish basically uh, determining how successful your game is and your definition of what you would consider polish, if that's like immersion of disbelief or what you consider polish. Oh, well, so polish has a very specific definition in the book. Everything has a very specific definition in the book just because I thought like I needed to be really, really precise about definitions, even if later on I kind of like ended up wanting to change some of that stuff. But polish in the book basically means anything in a game which lends the impression of a physical nature to the objects in the world, like a, a spray of particles or the thing jiggling when it hits something else. But actually, if you took those things away, it would not change the underlying functionality of the game at all. It's it's things that are primarily inserted to change your perception of things in the world. So I had I had this example of like a two balls that hit each other. You can like drag them together and whack them together, and if you just do it without any effects, it, they feel really like lifeless, and, and you're almost like styrofoam or something. And then if you do them with jiggle, then they sort of start to come alive, and then you do it with like spray of particles and dust and so on, and then it's like all of a sudden it really feels like these are two like rocks banging together or something like that. I see. I would assume, though, based on that, that this would be kind of an easier thing to achieve maybe in a, in a first-person game or something. Uh, it would be more difficult in a turn-based sort of looking down on it kind of game because you're not actually in the middle of all these events that are happening and all the effects that can be determined. So something like SimCity, how would you, how would that be still successful and allow you to have that, that polish that you're talking about? Um, well, in SimCity, you know, it's things like little particles that get kicked up from the road or the tires of the cars and it's, it's a lot more subtle in things like SimCity. But if you look at something like uh, the new XCOM, that has a ton of awesome polish in it. Mm-hmm. And I think actually, rather than polish, I think what I would call it now is juice, juiciness. Ooh. That's what seems to be converging, what people seem to be converging on as far as game designers calling it something. Okay. Then how, do, how does um, everyone explain Minecraft? <laughs> oh, dude, Minecraft is super juicy. Like, the, the way the, the blocks explode, explode and, like, the sound that it makes when you hit and stuff. I see. So it's not necessarily realism or trying to get the you to thing, feel like in real life that this would happen. It's more just... Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Subjective. Actually, I think that realism realism can really bite you in the ass, actually. And that's one of the main points I make in the book. Realism can bite you in the ass if you set up expectations in the player's mind that things will behave a certain way with the look of it. So if you make a photorealistic human being and then their face moves like a you know weird animatronic burn victim, then, you know... <laughs> You're way worse off than if you just made them look cartoony because you can manage that and you can actually do animations that will read well. I noticed that in and some that's, like that's Fallout sort of, stuff. Yeah, oh, Fallout is terrible. I don't know who they have directing characters there, but they need to fire that person and hire whoever did the characters for Eve or whatever. Let's see. Or the character for like Walking Dead. Walking Dead is a great example. Oh, of, I hear really good things about that. I, I think it's like on sale for $10 now, the episode one and two, which I definitely need this. I think episode one's free, and episode two is like $10 on Steam or something. I need to look. Yeah. 
I have not looked lately. This, okay, so this is a thing made by my friend Martin and my friend Petri. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin is working on this really neat game called Room Capsule, and, and Petri was the guy who made Crown Physics, and he's working on this like crazy, amazing wizard game thing. Uh, but anyway, this is a great example of, of juice. So if you get a chance to play around with that, um, I don't appear to be able to paste things into the Twitch stream. It kind of glitched out of me. Oh, That's there okay. I'm streaming it for you. I can type stuff in there now. Nice. This is like so Pong. Anyway, What's can... happening here? Okay, so this is Pong. So over on the left-hand panel there, there are a bunch of controls, and you can start to turn on the juice effects. Okay. Oh. So hit Escape to bring up the menu. Uh, I don't think I can. Uh, maybe not. Well, they can look. It's like clearly marked, and I'll. Yeah. Well, anyway, you can you can hit escape, um, and you can bring up the menu, and then you can just start turning on juice effects. So it's like, jiggle for the tiles, jiggle for the balls. Tiles explode when they get hit with the particles and so on. And it, and no functionality will ever change of the game at all at any time. And all of a sudden, the game will feel amazing. And like the little paddle gets eyes and gets all anthropomorphized, and it feels amazing. Cool. All right. Well, I linked it for the chat so they can do their own thing there. Ooh, I think that my friend's friend just posted a video. Yep, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So Martin, Martin and Petri gave a talk about juice, and this is like their example that they use, and it's, it's the best one out there that illustrates it really well. It's awesome. Nice. Okay. So. So we're still working our way through my life story. I thought. Yes, we are. <laughs> we are. So, when did you get asked to speak at conventions and, and public events? And is that after the authorship? No, that was just kind of always a thing that happened. I've always just been magically good at speaking publicly, and it's just the thing that I have that's nice that I can do that other people kind of have trouble with. Um, and so I try to speak a lot just because it's something I can do pretty well. And I teach and I taught for seven years or something like that. And so I have spoken at various conferences and I've spoken at lots of different schools and stuff like that. And then a few years ago, six years ago now, actually, I think my, my friend Simon Carlos, who used to run the Game Developers Conference and is now, I don't know what, global brand director or something for UVM. Um, wow. He was, he was like, hey, Steve and Matthew, if you guys want to help co-chair the IGF, the Independent Games Festival, and you want to help me organize the this Independent Game Summit thing that I'm putting together, and we're like, sweet, sounds good. And so you know, we put it together, and every so every year we assemble the speakers and the topics, and we get up there and MC it, and kind of go over everything. And it's it's fun and cool. We added Kelly Santiago from Oh Yes Game Journey. Yeah, yeah, man, this year was crazy, right? I know. I'm I'm glad. That game company is really nice. I I liked them since Flower and I'm glad that they finally got the attention they deserve a journey. Yeah, but I mean what's crazy about that is okay, so I mean I've been going to GDC since nineteen ninety nine. And I remember the first experimental gameplay workshop and I remember when John and Cress uh, and Chris Hecker showed up at GDC and they had this crazy talk and they were like we invented this thing called game jams. Like, that's a thing now. And at that time, it was all sequels and all you know, shoot 'em ups, and it was just everything looked really bad for the industry. And they just totally had this huge impact on the indie scene. Like, I went to the very first IGF ceremony. It was in the hallway. <laughs> oh well. And the company that won was four students who had made a 3D RTS game, and it was just like. 
oh my god, these students, they're not game industry people, and they made a game? Are you serious? Wow, let's reward that. And the name of that company was Vicarious Visions. <laughs> okay, so, so it's grown a so bit. It, yeah, they, well, they became quite a large company after that. Um, but so then, so then, out of nowhere, this indie scene has just really blossomed, and it seems like there's just exponentially more amazingly talented people every year. And then this year, it was like we had two IGF festivals, right? It was we did the normal IGF, and then nine out of the eleven games that were awarded by the Game Developers Choice Award, which is supposedly voted by mainstream industry people or you know anyone in the game industry, were like indie titles or indie inspired kind of stuff, like Journey. So it was it was just crazy because to me that says that we have arrived. It's now no longer the mainstream industry and the indies. It's like we're all together now and people really care about indie games and they're a vital part of the medium and they've sort of crossed over and it's really weird and crazy that that happens but like now where do we go because if journey wins everything over you know all the the triple a indies like no call of duties one and no you know <laughs> right but don't like, you think that? that makes the standard of excellence based on the game and not necessarily based on the sales Oh yeah, absolutely, and that's that's what's really heartening about it. It's like, wow, so Antichamber sat at number one on Steam for a couple of weeks, right? I'm like, wow, holy crap, people have taste now. Like, what's going on? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay. And FTL and stuff like that. Like, I was super pleased to see that. But I just it just felt like this crazy tipping point year where now all of a sudden what we do is no longer this niche thing. It's kind of the big deal thing now. Mm -hmm. And so do we still do an IGF festival if all the games that are going to be awarded in the Game Developers Choice Awards are... I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, what's your new category for you know, creative startups, basically? Hmm. But it was just it's just been fascinating to be at every one of these GCs and see, you know, basically a very small minority within the game industry turn and really make it totally different than it was five years ago, ten years ago. Mm. Yeah, it's been fun to watch. It seems like there's a lot that's changing in the industry as far as people getting very frustrated with costs of, you know, the big the big game developers and things like that, and I guess turning towards maybe the less expensive, you know, really creative games. I think there's a lot of changes coming, so we'll see. We'll see, like you said, what happens in the future as far as uh, Kickstarters, as far as you know, indie gaming and people's, uh, I guess, acceptance of it or, or welcoming, embracing of it. Well, it's fascinating to me that something like like FTL can be so successful because it's not as though people haven't been making spaceship games for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it's not as though people haven't been making spaceship, like, bridge simulator games and, you know... But they just they just found that right combination, and it's not like the graphics are particularly sophisticated. In fact, they're very crude and retro by the standard of something like Bioshock Infinite or these other games that are coming out. Right. But what's fascinating is that good gameplay will out, right? I mean, FTL was like a virus that spread through every major game studio, from what I understand. Like everyone played it. If you apply everyone. the the principles in your um, game feel book to you know FTL or something. Can you see like a clear delineation where you say you know this game is successful because it tick 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 and you can tick them off? What do you think made it so so very viral? Well, FTL is sort of. I mean, it has good usability and it's not really particularly about game feel at all, and you don't really like you don't really real time control anything particularly, so it's not. 
it's like you don't have that sensation where you're like steering something mm -hmm. but i mean i would say it's just the way the elements are all put together i mean it's it has a lot of sort of board gaminess to it but all the elements that they chose to make real time really make the game feel more stressful more interesting and more like to to succeed at that game it's all about like sh you know sh shutting off the oxygen so that you guys are all slowly asphyxiating so you can get more power to the shields for that one moment when their missile is coming in and so on their one laser is coming in or whatever. i don't know it's i don't know it's just a, it's it sort of trade-offs the game like it's very board gamey in that respect but it's just extremely well executed they, they gave a wonderful talk at the independent game summit this year i was really happy because they wanted them to speak at the main conference. They were trying, you know, like, hey, let's slot them into the main conference because all these mainstream devs like them. And they were like, no, we want to speak at the indie conference because that's kind of where we got started. I was like, yes, awesome. <laughs> um, as an organizer of that. But they gave this wonderful talk and, and it was kind of like everything went better than expected. Like we, but, but the, the motif that was running underneath it was we were extremely careful about scope. And at every point in development, we were always willing to throw out everything. And we were never, we had the discipline always to not allow a bunch of crazy ideas to creep in because we had this really clear vision of what the experience should be. And, you know, we got it working really soon and we refined it and refined it and refined it. And we just happened to hit the Kickstarter at the right moment. And we had this game that was basically finished so people could like play it as soon as they joined the Kickstarter. And, you know, it was just, Everything went perfectly for them, and it's just such a great lesson about how to just cull out everything that's not important mm -hmm. and and make a game that really resonates with people. Like it doesn't have to have fancy graphics of any kind. It just has to be really good gameplay that's really well assembled. Do you it's think just, that's because of a small team? I mean, I would assume like larger projects, you know, like we're talking Bioshock Infinite, it'd be very difficult to to not keep the outside influences, you know, from adding and taking away and, and to have one person kind of direct that ship. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a pretty firm believer in sort of auteur theory uh, as, it, as it applies to games. Because I've, I've worked on a lot of games, not a lot, but a few games that had, you know, 80 people working on them. And, you know, like I wrote all the dialogue for the first level of Tony Hawk Underground and I, you know, designed, you know, and built about half of it and... And then I like placed all the goals and I scripted all, all the goals and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And in the end, I don't really feel like it has my fingerprints on it particularly. You know, it's still kind of just, you take a bunch of colors and you can like mix red and blue together and you get like purple and then you like add five more colors and all of a sudden you just end up with this brown mess. And I feel like that happens with a lot of larger games and it just can't help but happen. It's like, once you go past a certain point, everything just becomes a brown mess because there's just no way to make a game of that size with a very small team. I, I kind of feel like Journey is about the largest game you could make and still maintain a real powerful, obsessive authorial control, mm -hmm. which I know Genova does, and it drives some people crazy on his teams. But it, you know, you can't argue with the results. I, I wonder if it's possible to like do that and not drive everyone crazy, but. It's, I'm not sure, because that seems to happen in film and stuff, too. I think you'd have to be a bit of a dictator, just, you know, very, very dogged about your vision. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just really tough. It's really, like, I, so I was working at ASU, and we had about 10 people on that team, and I would, I would lay out what I thought was a really clear vision for the design, and then people would go off and make stuff, and we'd get back together, and it'd be like, wow, okay, so I was totally not clear at all. And, and from my perspective... It just felt like a, a failing of me 
But I think that's just the way that I take it, right? It's like, I just need to do a better job of conveying what I want. So I like work way harder on making good mock-ups for everything and, and, you know, making sure from three different angles that I was very clear about what the art needed to do and what it needed to look like and so on. Mm -hmm. But I feel like with games in particular, you have sort of the sum total of all previous media put together. You have music, you have sound, you have visual art. And then on top of this is this crazy binding force of interactivity that somehow magically needs to work. And then there's like, there's like challenge, which comes in there and that's different from usability, right? Like if somebody can figure out, can't figure out what to do, that's like a usability problem. Like yes. If I'm trying to play and I just don't know what I'm supposed to do, like that, you can consider that a usability problem. And then challenge is like, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I can't do it. And then you get into like Mihaly, Chisek Mihai and flow and all that sort of thing. <laughs> you're, supposed to like, you're, you're supposed to like keep the player in that flow state where it's not too hard and not too easy, right? Yeah, you don't want to encourage trainers. Yeah, but like, yeah, but then there's there's whole games that are all about not knowing what to do and that feeling of trying to figure out what to do at all. Like there's this game called Starseed Pilgrim that every game designer ever is really in love with right now, and I, I didn't, haven't even picked it up yet. I need to. I, I was crunching for GDC on my stuff, but that game, it from what I understand, is all about just being confused and and being self motivated and finding your own questions to ask and finding answers to them and so on. I feel like Don't Starve is like that. Okay, yeah, I I need to play more on that. I love play, by the way. Mm. Yes, they I were at PAX. Did you see them? Yeah, 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 totally. I didn't get to see the person I interviewed from them, Kevin Forbes. He was apparently coding, but it was cool to see them there and they have a booth and everything. That was, it was <laughs> nice. I think they're excited. Uh, yeah, I thought that I thought that uh, Mark of the Ninja was like a crazy watershed for them. Like that was an amazing, you know, upgrade in their in their abilities. It just it's such a good game. I'm so sad that it didn't do crazy, crazy good. Like, it did pretty well, but not just, like, off the charts good, mm -hmm. as well as it deserved to do. I think they've been well rewarded with Don't Starve. It's it's quite, uh, it's getting up there. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Let's uh, move to some of the more educational stuff that you were talking about. Now, the games I was researching, Atlantis Remixed Project, I didn't mm -hmm. know that this correlated necessarily with what you were talking about um, with the doctor going into the plague-ridden town, because this seemed a, like a different game. But I think the concepts are probably similar. So, so Atlantis Remix is the wrapper for all of these different games. Okay. So there's Atlantis Remix, The Doctor's Cure, which is the one about persuasive writing, which is told through that sort of retelling of Frankenstein, where the teacher, you know, you're a reporter, you're positioned as a reporter, and you come into the town, and you have to, like, write a persuasive essay in the town newspaper that sways all the townspeople one way or another and then the the head reporter the head you know, editor is is the teacher they play the, they play that character and so you keep like submitting your story to scoop the editor and then and yeah. either he accepts it or not and yeah I, I mean i was talking a little bit at, pa at pax about how one of the biggest problems we were trying to solve was how to keep the teachers interested and engaged and we found that making the teacher, one of the characters in the game, was really huge, not only for teacher engagement, but also just for, for like the practical aspects of classroom management. Because if a kid submits their essay and Mrs. Johnson is like, no good, Billy, go back and rewrite it, Billy's like, oh, that Mrs. Johnson, <laughs> that tears it. Sort of more lead speak, angry language, I guess, yes. today's kids. But 
But when it's Scoop, it's like, oh, that's Scoop. He's a real asshole. I like, <laughs> you know, and they, everybody knows that, that Scoop is the teacher, like, and the teacher knows the kids know, but for some reason it's like this really nice misdirection and it works out really well for, for teachers in classrooms. I think that happens, you know, in a lot of games, and it's probably interesting that it, I would imagine it maybe works both ways, because teachers have, I mean, as much as they don't want to, they have opinions formed about their students and their abilities and everything else, and I would think maybe seeing your, your student as an avatar and just kind of you know, separating that one step away from your student, just looking at their work, you know, completely in written form and seeing that avatar might actually give you a different perspective, I think, on some of your students. Yeah, and... The theory of transformational play, which was, was primarily created, as I understand it, by the academic that we were working with, Sasha, um, one of the core principles of that is, is embodiment. Like you, if in order for a kid to be invested in a world enough to really learn stuff and care about the world, they need to feel they have some stake in it. And so our answer to that was to make this like avatar creator. See? One of the things I think has a significant impact too on these games is not only are you learning you know, things that you'd be taught in the curriculum in a more creative way that you possibly could remember it, but that there's actual consequences which you don't often see in school. And I've had a, I've had people tell me, um, even just today, somebody was telling me that uh, gaming actually did more in their life to help them differentiate between you know, moral choices than their religion because there's actual consequences like that they they have to perceive immediately to their choices and that kind of gives them a indication maybe of how they they fall on the scale of morality um, because they have to face things that they probably won't have to you know until later on in life or choices that would be kind of all yeah. condensed into one so uh, in the game you're talking about the the doctor and the plague you know, and all that there's consequences to that game do you feel like those are like appropriate to the level, I think, 9 to 16 that are playing the game? And what are those consequences for the listeners? Uh, well, I w my instinct was that they were not appropriate, but I was assured by the academics that we were working with that this is good stuff. And this is the kind of thing that kids don't ever see where it's not kidified. It's like if you persuade the town to be in favor of the doctor, then the creature who he's been experimenting on, which is maybe... Or maybe not made out of parts of humans from the graveyard of people's loved ones or something. <laughs> but the creature who has a little girl he's friends with, the little blind girl in the town, you find her like weeping over his body because he's been experimented on too much. And then if you go the other way and convince the, the townspeople to evict the doctor that he can't do his experiments anymore, then half the people in the town that you've been talking to are dead when you show up again. Like it, it warps you forward in time. And so it's like pretty heavy and. And so then you get, so what you get is you get some really fascinating writing that comes out of that because the kids get really invested in the world and they know all the characters. And so they get done with it and then they're like, they're like, I still think it was a good idea to throw the doctor out because you can't experiment on humans. And, you know, they actually have an opinion about it. Like that's, that's all we're trying to do is get the kids to give a shit. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're in school and they give you an essay topic, I mean, it's so hard to manufacture an ounce of care about what they've given you because it's always so asinine and it's always so sanitized. So I feel like we've sort of snuck something by them, which is really awesome <laughs> in some ways. It's like, hey, we're going to put this crazy-ass game in there and, it, it, and you can't deny the learning games. Like, we have all this data, mm -hmm. uh, but maybe it makes some people uncomfortable. It seems to work pretty well, though. I don't know. I'm pretty happy with it. 
Well, it says uh, on the website that it's in 22 states, 18 countries, and more than 50,000 students have, have played it. Um, it seems like also, I guess, it doesn't necessarily meet individual state standards, that there's some sort of a, a MECREL content knowledge standard, which is sort of universal. Do you think this is going to end up being picked up by a lot of states and, you know, integrated? Because right now, I know right now uh, where I am, we have something called Study Island, which is awfully similar, where you have you know, kind of tiny mini-games, uh, math-related, you know, basically Frogger, you know, teaches you math problems or something. It seems like games are kind of becoming more integrated regardless, but this particular game and this particular set of games, um, is there a push to kind of move them to other states and try to make it you know, spread? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's not my department, really. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm a, a game designer. I worry about making the thing good, making sure it it teaches what it's supposed to teach, and that it, it has, um, you know, it's it's has integrity as a system. We don't water down the things that can't, you know, that that need to be there for the kids to really learn. So, in the case of the persuasive writing one, it's that thing that I showed where you're dragging around the the different pieces of evidence, linking to the reasons, reasons and the thesis. Yes. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's a really complex problem, right? Like I was talking about in the, in the talk about how complex systems are uh, the world today. That's just the, the reality of it. And if you want to succeed in the world, you need to be able to interface with complex systems. This is a really complex problem that we're trying to solve. From what I understand, the way things are going right now, and I'm obviously not super up to date since I, I left that job like three months ago, but from what I understand, the situation is the Gates Foundation has come in and they are creating a core curriculum standard that will be adopted by 49 states, okay. which is huge. And that hasn't happened in a long time. Mostly the states have actually pretty wide variance in what they teach and how they teach it mm -hmm. and what, how they test for it. So No Child Left Behind, in my opinion, did a lot of damage because it, it really put a lot of emphasis on standardized testing. And it puts some really serious consequences to your kids failing standardized tests. So you would lose funding for your school. So schools have been shut down because of no child left behind, from what I understand. Um, my teacher friends aren't happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So apparently there are some children left behind there. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, what? Nonsense. Uh, but anyway, so now the Gates Foundation is, is creating this core curriculum standard, which is going to be adopted by all the states. So it's actually sort of a unique opportunity to redefine radically what American school children get taught. And my, my bros at, um, ASU at the Center for Games and Impact and Eline Ventures, which is a company founded by, um, Alan Gershenfeld, who used to be an, an Activision executive. And, but he's like a really awesome dude. And he, he ran a bunch of, uh, you know, like a, a learning charity. And sort of, anyway, um, they are trying really hard to figure out how to get these games into schools as texts, not as, you know, supplemental add-on after school kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And to, and to form a new vision for what a modern curriculum should be. Something that's not industrial age, teach kids how to be workers. Something that teaches kids how to be confident in their ability to interface with complex systems and, and teaches them how to program and teaches them that the world is not simple and it can't be boiled down to grades and if you want to be successful you, you have to produce stuff you can't just like you know do your homework and assume that you're just as good as everyone else and expect to have all the rewards come to you like it just doesn't work that way
It's very weird, I think, for kids going from a, such a structured environment where every hour of your day is choreographed and planned, and you will learn this now, this now, this now, to suddenly you're in college when you have like five classes and you just have to show up and do all that stuff. It's a very weird transition, and then, you know, hey, from college, by the way, now you're into life and you have to make all your own decisions and all your own time management and all your own decision on, you know, what is worth it for your life to spend time on and still make money. And it's a, it's not a very good, uh, I guess, upswing on, on an education to teach you how to do that. Yeah, and I, I think that, I mean, you've outlined the fundamental failing of our education system, right? There's a very great talk by, as a TED Talk, uh, by Ken Robinson, where anyway, he, he has this great rant about education, but he says that um, the, the public education system is just basically a protracted process of entry exams for university. Mm. And that, you know, if you look at it, if you look at the system and you're an alien that comes from outer space and you say, okay, what's it for? What good is it? Who gets all the brownie points and who wins in the end? It's basically university professors. It's basically a system that creates university professors. But, you know, there aren't that many university professors and that's not what most of us want to do. So when you kind of get to the end of this pipe and you kind of get shoved out and then it's kind of like, what? <laughs> and then the door slams shut behind you and you're like, what? Right. What? Oh God! And then, like, you hear the howling of wolves, and you're like, "Oh God! Oh, life! What the hell's going on here?" Well, I mean, you have all these tools in your little tool belt, and none of them apply to anything that you do. It's like that wrench from IKEA. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I have an Allen wrench, guys. Guys. Right. Well, I I don't know what at age twenty you can be. You can really make decisions that will impact the rest of your life on what you want to do for the next, you know, ninety years. And most people that I know that are in things that they love don't do anything close to what they did when they went to college. So I guess the assumption is education will bring you happiness and success. But unfortunately, you know, how do you choose the things you need to be educated in at, you know, 18? I don't know how you do. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people who have eventually found what they really love to do and figured it out and, and started educating themselves after college and high school and stuff, they kind of think that, well, you know, throw your hands up, that's not really a solvable problem. But I think that it is a solvable problem. Like, I, I've, I've met many people who are young, like 18, 15, whatever, and they have got it all figured out, man. And yeah, it yeah. makes me feel terrible. Like, wow, I was an idiot. Wow, I'm still an idiot. <laughs> like my friend Tyler Glale, who created the game Closure, which is a really amazing game. You know, he was 14 when he published his first game to Newgrounds. Wow. And he, I think in 2005, he made 30 games or something as a 14 or 15 year old or something like that. I mean, ask him about anything. He has no illusions about the way the world works. He's totally plugged in. And like there's a yeah anyway but you could go on but it, it seems like there's a high correlation between people who are homeschooled by really intelligent parents and people who have sort of got it all figured out. Ah, I could see that would be true. That's not something I could ever do. <laughs> Home homeschooling kids. No. no. Yeah. That's a special actually challenge. interestingly enough, uh, parents who homeschool really love the Atlantis Remix stuff because of a, a much more severe version of the same problem. They love being scoop and grading the homework. Because it's not mom who's being awful to me and is like the only person I ever interface with. Um, it's it's like Scoop. It's not my dad. Right. It's Scoop. I noticed that, that phenomenon. Like if you ever play, I know families that play World of Warcraft together. 
and you interact completely differently with your parent, sister, brother as an avatar in a MMO than you do like face to face in your house. Oh yeah, I think it's good. I mean, I think it gives you an opportunity to explore those relationships in a safe place, and that's one of those things that games can do really well. So, so the other big um, game that we made is called Mystery of Tiger River, and I, I talked about that a little bit, right? It's the one with with the water quality. You know, the, the fish are dying in this river and there are three different stakeholders and you have to like test the water quality, all these different points or whatever. You can't, so, so you are the water quality scientist and you have to make decisions about what to do to save this ecosystem and save these fish. And then you get to fast forward in time and see what the result of your decision was, whether or not the fish die and the park closes or whether or not you figured it out. And then if you screw up, you just get to rewind and go do it again. And try, you know, try again, experiment some more. That's what games are really good at, right? Like that loop of failure. They make you not afraid of failure because there's no consequence. And as, as a result of that, you learn the system deeply interesting, you know, in, in every little nuance like that. I, I put up that periodic table versus Pokemon thing. Yes. Right? If somebody could make a really interesting game out of the periodic table, you know that every kid would know the whole periodic table off the top of their head because it would be usefully applied in the that they understood and made sense to them. Um, yeah, so anyway. Well, here's the question I was, was I was telling you. Yeah. That <laughs> what I, was the, the point? The point was um, that people interact differently with avatars because this is some sort of... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, 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 totally. Um, yeah, so anyway, you can't like take a bunch of kids to a national park and then have them make important, meaningful, impactful decisions about the ecosystem of that park, but you can do it in a video game. Right, it it gives you that amazing freedom, and that is a huge, huge thing. And it's like something we don't utilize enough. And so I don't know. I feel like there are things that could be really well taught to kids through games, and there are things that games shouldn't do. Like there are definitely things that you should be taught outside of games. But there are lots and lots of things that are taught in schools that are taught in a way that is very linearized, so that it's easy for the teacher to deal with and grade and mm-hmm. and do on a standardized test. It really should be done inside a game. Well, you have a lot know, of the senses, too, with games. I mean, you've got the, the sight, the hearing, I mean, minus the smell. You've pretty much got all the senses, and everyone learns differently, so it's kind of a, a more compassing way to teach, I would think. Oh, yeah, totally. And, I mean, we, like, teachers are awesome, and I, I can't believe they do what they do for the horrible salary that we pay them and, like, the terrible system that we put them in. But, but like, if you have 30 kids, you're going to miss some of them, right? Like, some of them are going to learn in a way that you just are not going to be able to figure out fast enough to get them on a track where they're not horribly, horribly behind. Like, it's just going to happen. But in a game, you let people self-select amongst the things that they like to do, and they don't even think about it. They don't think that they're having the game tailored to their learning style, right? Like, I feel like some some of the designs of some of these educational things, like I'm looking at this study island thing that you posted me. Yeah. It looks like it's an auto-self-adjusting, like, learning tool thing that will try, like, if you're trying to do fractions and you keep messing up with like feed you a bunch of information about fractions and stuff yes. like that. And that's interesting, but I think that that needs to sort of be flipped on its head from a game design perspective. And you just give people lots of opportunities for things to do, like you would in a in a Skyrim or MMO or something. Mm-hmm. And as long as as long as they're doing something and they're they're self selecting and they're able to self select and they feel empowered to self select the types of activities that they like, you can very easily pinpoint their learning style, and you can start tailoring content to that. Like, especially if we pair that with, like, the back end that I showed, 
you know, we, we try to draw teachers in with this sort of simple Facebook-like interface and give them all these tools to cut the data about what their students are doing many, many different ways. If we pair those two things together and empower the teachers to, like, see what the students want to do and what they're interested in and what they're doing, then all of a sudden you've maybe given the teacher a tool to actually deal with this huge number of students that they're, they're having to work with. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, there it is. Okay, so here's the question that I was telling you that I wanted to ask you at PAX, but I thought was unfair. Okay. Uh, I do believe that gaming can teach you a lot of things. It's a good educational tool, and you've seen the facts and the figures and everything showing that, you know, it would be good to be integrated into schools for all the reasons we've stated. So yes. here's a battle that I fight, and I would like your opinion on it. Um, okay. If gaming is an educational tool, and it is something that we can say... You know, hey, this has obviously taught someone something and changed their perspective in some way. How can we then also say that violence in gaming has no correlation to the games that we are playing or showing? Because I would like to have an answer. Obviously, I want it to go a certain way. And I tell my friends, no, no, there's no correlation between violence and gaming. And just because I am much better at first-person shooters now, because I've played them for a year, doesn't mean that I would actually be good with an actual gun in my hand, nor do I feel the inclination to go and actually shoot someone, even though I really like to kick that zombie in the head with my shotgun. Yeah. But yeah, how I've... do you say that if you're going to say, you know, you need to integrate games into your educational system because these are going to, you know, somehow present information to you in a way that's going to be, you know, more acclimated into your brain. Like, what... How, how would you argue that point? How would, you, probably... how would you argue that, that violence in gaming, there is no correlation between, you know, I guess education that could lead you towards violent acts and you can say yet that gaming is good at education as far as you know factual stuff that you would yeah. do in school okay so I'm, I'm gonna give you a meta answer and then like actually answer your question so the meta answer is that those those simplified sound bites uh, you know violent games cause kids to be violent and all games are good for education or games are good for teaching kids. Like we should put games in every, you know, the problem with a soundbite like that is that it tries to simplify an extremely complex phenomenon. And, and that's exactly the type of problem that I was sort of railing against schools trying to teach you to look for that simple problem. And our news media, it does this egregiously, right? Like they always want to simplify every scientific study down to a soundbite and so on. Um, but the problem with that is it just doesn't address the underlying reality of what's happening, right? So, for example, violence in video games. Okay, so you have unpacking that sentence. Okay, so what does violence in children actually mean? Does it mean kids behaving aggressively? Does it mean kids roughhousing? Does it mean kids won't sit still in class? Does it mean what does it mean? I guess it means no. kids inured to the consequences of violence because they're used to seeing it over and over and it doesn't somehow have the impact that it would in reality. So how do you measure that? You have a bunch of kids who like smash each other over the head with glass bottles <laughs> and assume the other kids are just going to get back up. Like th this is the problem, right? Because you know, you, you have to really unpack what it is that you're asking there because like child on child violence is like immeasurable. Like I don't, I don't know how you would measure that. So how would you ever draw a conclusion from it? Like it's kind of a straw man. It's it's impossible to measure that. And it's just, and and to go a step further and try to draw a correlation between kids who play violent video games and kids who like push each other off of buildings and then expect them not to die. Like you know, you just there's there's no data. Like there's no way to substantiate that claim and there's no way to prove it or disprove it one way or another. Um, 
anecdotally, I can tell you that I had a lot of like emotional problems as a kid, and I used to like get in fights all the time and stuff. And violent video games were like a great coping mechanism for me because I could take out my aggression in the game. Uh, I also used to just like beat a wall with a foam bat, and that was like really awesome and like relaxing for me. Right, and and now I'm just like a totally chill person. So apparently that turned out well, right? <laughs> yes. But I think that there are some kids who, for whom playing violent video games can result in like aggressive violence when they get frustrated, or it can result in if they're like totally off the rails and have no good parenting, a distorted sense of reality. But then you're taught you're really the problem that you have there is that they, they have a lack of good parenting and role models and, and so it's just kinda like how can I ever answer that question in a meaningful way? Like I it just simply can't be generalized that way. And that's like a really unsatisfying answer, which is why news media and people in conversation just like try to distill it down to violent video games make kids violent, yes or no. Are you for or against the statement? And and it's like it's just really unsatisfying to try and answer it. Um, what we do know is that you can train mechanical skills digitally. So actually, if somebody did a real serious study on whether or not you could train someone how to accurately load, fire, assemble, and disassemble a rifle, and how to you know breathe in and and hold your breath while you shoot the shot and stuff like that. Like you could definitely train people how to do that in a game and we know that for a fact because the US Army has a game that trains you to do that. Mm-hmm. Aircraft so pilots as put, well, I believe learn things that way. Yeah, and so and, and and if you get into a modern US aircraft and you're like the gunner, you have a thing that kind of looks like an Xbox controller now. Which makes me feel really weird, right? Like that's <laughs> good. That's really creepy. But then you know they also train surgeons with with uh, interactive simulations and stuff now too, and and like most surgeons play a lot of video games because it keeps their reflexes sharp, and and allows them to kind of you know relax in a in a lower pressure environment and so on. So, yeah, again, a really complicated question that doesn't have a satisfying answer, and then therefore, you know, it's hard or to converse about. So I think that, yes, I think there is a correlation between... Yeah. <laughs> Some people in the chat are, are supplying... Yeah. Yeah, okay, so anyway, to, so I guess I guess the core of the, the question then becomes, like, do games affect people's moral compasses? Mm. And I, I feel like you would... It'd be a stretch to say that they that playing a video game will radically distort your reality to the degree that you would think that shooting someone with a gun would not have a consequence. Like, I, I feel like that's really, really hard to back that statement up. Unless you were indoctrinated and you played it 24-7 and no one regulated your time and you were completely unbalanced. I mean... Right, right. But then you have a whole slew of other problems <laughs> that really have to do with video games. Absolutely. You know, like, I mean, you can, get, you can get a room full of people to drink Kool-Aid with cyanide in it if you can convince them to do it. <laughs> but does that mean that Kool-Aid kills people? Like, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't follow, logically. Mm-hmm. That's a dumb example, but you know what I mean. I do. I think, you know, it's actually Tushar, who's in the chat right now, was telling me something about a study with where they had three different groups of people, and they gave them they gave them spices and said that they could, there were going to be some pepper testers or something. I think okay. I'm going to probably butcher this, Tushar, so you can say in the chat. Um, <laughs> 
and that one group uh, could could adjust the level of you know hotness in the spice. They could all do it however however they wanted, make it as hot or as as mild as they wanted. And one group was made to play video games where they just played like violent video games, you know, with a single player uh, game. And those people upped the spice level like a little bit, but the people that really really got mean about it and did like the worst spice level were the people that were PVPing. And just got really, really mad, I guess, against other people. Hot sauce, there you go, hot sauce. <laughs> so <laughs> he could probably explain that better, but I, I So it's the aggression of the game that they were playing PvP caused them to like to go come. aggro with the hot sauce. Did they have some incentive structure where they knew that the, the hot sauce that they were drinking oh he's like it, they're cool. Yeah. Well they knew that the hot sauce would be tested, so they were just trying to see how mean they would be to the testers coming after. Okay, here let me let me look oh, at this. I will Okay, okay. No, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there we go. Technical foul. You can see that. Let's see. But yeah, you can uh, read that. <laughs> cool. So interesting stuff. Um, okay, well, how about we talk about the game that you uh, presented at GDC and some of the stuff you're up to um, as we get ready to close? Yeah, all right. So the game's called Scale. Um, I should have sent you a demo. I didn't do that. Anyway, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a sort of puzzly, sort of platformy, experimental first-person game where you can scale objects up and down as much as you want. And... Um, that freedom is really important to the gameplay, and I, I tell people that, and they're like, oh, you know, that sounds kind of cool, and, and they imagine just kind of, like, making an ant really large or something like that. Um, but I, I have a lot of things going on that seem to be falling out of this that seem really cool and interesting, and I'm really excited about them. So, for example, my sort of marquee puzzle right now that I show people, which is kind of, like, the reason to, to make this game and continue to work on it, is uh, I have a little tiny house in the level, and it's like a dollhouse. And so you scale the dollhouse up, and all of a sudden it's large enough for you to walk into. And so you're walking through this house, and you go up into the back bedroom of the house, and by the bed there's, on a dresser, another dollhouse. And so there's like a little tiny house inside the tiny house that you just made large, Whoa. and you take that tiny house outside of the large house and put it down, because you can carry things, and then you scale that house up, and you go into that house, and in the back bedroom of that house, there's like a little trigger plate that needs to be weighed down, and there are no other objects in the level. So then you have to go outside, scale down the first house you're in, and put it in the position that you found this house that you're now in in order to unlock the puzzle. Anyway, so that sort of like nesting and recursion and the ability to manipulate the scale of objects is kind of what the game is all about. And I, I, I don't I think it's really interesting. It's it, like some interesting stuff is falling out of it. I'm really happy with how it's going. I think that's very cool because you have the Alice in Wonderland effect where you have the actual main character changing sizes and going around but you don't often get a chance to to change the objects around you and remain the same size consistently yourself yeah and there are a lot there are a few other games that are doing the changing the size of the character thing mm -hmm. the dilating pupil uh, specter spelunker stuff like that and um, those games are all in 2d and I found that you can't really tell if you're in uh -huh. 3d if your character is being scaled up and down or not, like it's indistinguishable from the world being scaled up and down. But actually, I have a whole world where the world does get scaled up and down, and that's that's an available action, which I think is it's really interesting because it's so the dumb example thing that I made was you have this endless desert, and you there are videos of this online by the way, so you can, you can watch this if you want. But you sort of come up to the edge, and there's like this Grand Canyon-like gigantic you know channel up by a river, and then 
Uh, you can't get anywhere close to getting across it, but you can scale the whole world down. So you just like scale the world down until the the chasm chasm rather is large enough for you or small enough for you to jump across. Then you can just like leave the castle. And what's interesting about that is that it sort of warps time by warping space because if you try to run across that whole desert, it would take you forever. But because it's um, you can scale the whole world down, you can just like scale the world down, take two steps, scale it up again, and you're like a mile across the terrain. That's cool. So that's kind of where I'm heading with it. You have a kitty back there. There's a lot of them. This one's not in my lap. That's all that matters. <laughs> okay. So working on that, and you said it's going to be a little while, and people are comparing this to Portal in Minecraft. <laughs> what's, what's with that? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, okay. So I'm just doing this temporary art style. It's basically simple pixel art textures on 3D objects, and when the video kind of accidentally went, <laughs> when the when the video sort of accidentally went viral and like IGN and Kotaku and all these places covered it, it was like, oh man, the indies need to stop abusing that Minecraft art style, uh, blah, 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 okay. and I was just like, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, temporary art style doesn't really matter. Anyway, so now I have this sort of faceted art style. Here, I'll send you a screenshot. It'd be cool. Yeah. I'm okay, looking for questions from the chat room, too. So, chat room, if okay. you have stuff to ask, ask it now. While they're doing questions and getting ready for stuff, uh, anything that you would like to let people know, I guess, mm. as far as stuff you're up to, where to look for you, things you're going to be doing recently? I'm just going to be trying to be a good developer and blogging about scale more regularly. I feel like I need to push the look just a little bit more before I sort of go wide with the new art style, but that'll be popping up pretty soon. And I would really love to do some kind of crowdfunding thing at some point. Um, we'll see if that makes sense or not. It's kind of interesting because it's a puzzle game, so, you know, a puzzle-ish game. Mm -hmm. Um... So I'm not sure if it makes sense, because if I give the game away, then it's like spoiling a bunch of the ideas without I see. having sewn together perfectly. It's not like FTL, where, you know, I can just tweak and revise it. That's kind of a perfect thing. Oh, yeah, there you go. You can put that on the phone. Yeah, it's the same thing, shot I think you showed me, so figure to show your whole okay. website. There you go. All right, so questions from the chat. Um, the screenshot that I sent you is pretty radically different from the is old it? stuff. Here, I'll open yeah. it again. Okay. Um, Fane asks, what is your personal process in designing a game from start to finish, and where do you start? I would be interested, too, in this scale. I mean, just from a game design perspective, if you're making an object that's going to change so significantly in size, there must be different design processes for that. I don't know. So anyway, Fane's question first. Yeah. Um, well, so there's this book called Rules of Play, written by Eric Zimmerman and Katie Salen, which is sort of the quintessential game textbook. And there's a great, great essay by the famous board game designer Reiner Kinesia at the beginning of it. And he has this great line about if you always start in the same place with the same process, you'll often end in the same place. So he always tries to try really radically different approaches every time he designs a game. And I kind of think that's the way to go. But in the specific instance of scale, I just was thinking about ideas for mechanics that would interest me to work on. And I 
I have this problem where I can't just like design a regular game. I just want I, like in order for something to be interesting for me to work on, there has to be something about it that no one's ever tried before. Like it could could possibly lead in the future to some kind of experience that no one has ever put into a game before. And so the scaling thing, it's kind of like you know moving forward and backward in time. You know, Braid explored that really well. You know, and and so just sort of thinking of other things that you can do. And it occurred to me that a simple action that you can do in a 3D modeling program is scale things up and down, and it feels kind of fun and interesting. And so I just kind of took that and turned it into a beam gun <laughs> that you could do that. And the initial results were really promising, and so then I just I, met, I made this like terrible room escape demo that was very Portal-inspired, just because it was for a game jam and I didn't have a lot of time to think about what I was going to do. Um, and so I sort of reflexively just made a bunch of levels and tried to isolate the interesting elements of it and, and work through the permutations that way. Where I'm heading now, um, Naomi Clark, I, I don't know if she works, I don't know where she's working now. She's worked with Game Lab. Uh, she's in New York. But anyway, I was in New York giving a Game Field Masterclass at NYU, and I was showing scale around, and, and she was like, why does it need to be puzzles? Like, why does it need to be levels? Like, you know, it just seems really fun. And I was like, oh, right, okay, that totally makes sense. Like, I need to just stop trying to control it so rigidly and just let it be a fun and interesting thing. Because the first thing that everybody does when they open the game up is just try to scale something up as big as they can, right? Because it's just funny and silly, <laughs> weird and interesting. And so it's so obviously I should just do that, and that should be one of the puzzles. There should just be a star up in a castle in the sky floating in some clouds or something, and you have to scale like a little tiny flower until it's as big as a hundred story building and now you're up in the clouds, right? Like that should just be one of the first things that you do because that's what everybody wants to do. So that's not particularly difficult to figure out, just like the nested houses thing. I've tested it with quite a few people now. And that's just what everybody does, right? Like it's not a it's not a complex, difficult to figure out thing, but it's interesting. And so like maybe the whole game wants to be that. So I'm actually sort of heading towards this more Mario sixty four kind of structure where I'll turn you loose in a level and I'll give you something to do. You have this list of things to work on, uh, but you can go do all these other things if you want to. Yeah, rewarded for exploring. That's good. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what Raptor Safari does, right? It, there's all these overlapping combo systems that reward you for exploring the possibility space a lot more. Yes. Okay, Fuzzy Spoon asks, how would you approach converting a concept in education to a game, i.e. not gamifying an existing model, but remaking the entire model as a game instead? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So this is totally the problem that everyone in game education is trying to solve right now, whether or not they realize they're trying to solve it. And I think a lot of people sort of reflexively grab a game design that already exists and then try to make their concept work with it. Um, I think that's actually the opposite of the approach you should do. Hmm. What you should do is learn the material really, really insanely well. Like, you should go just, like, live with the content expert. So, you know, for the persuasive writing stuff, we were talking to Jim G, who is sort of the foremost scholar in literacy in the world. Right? And he was just kicking our asses, you know. He was just like, bam, 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 you're screwing up here, all this stuff is wrong, you know. Wow. Rattling off all these names of, of books and papers that I've never heard before, and it's like, okay, scribble all that stuff down, time to go read it, right? And that's what I feel like game designers don't often do. It's like, you don't, we don't respect back to the fact these people are professional teachers and academics, and they've thought about this stuff way more than we have. The only thing that we're really bringing to the equation is that we know how to make a game. Now, a game, 
in, in many cases is, is like a highly complex system. And in order for it to be successful, it has to teach. And so you have to like be able to embed teaching intuitively into a system. So actually, I think game designers and teachers have way more in common than, than we think. But yeah, the long answer to that short question is basically love the content and then let the content lead you to where the game wants to go. So like for the earth sciences thing, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, okay, what I'm supposed to be teaching here is systems complexity, right? I'm supposed to be teaching these kids that there are complex systems and, and how to interact with them and stuff. Okay, so the only way to do that is to actually make a legitimately complex system. Okay, so now I'm off and I'm reading 30 articles about water quality and the different things that fish farmers worry about when they're trying to create a successful fish farm, because that will tell me, you know, what kills off fish. And, you know, I'm reading all this stuff about river ecosystems. And so, you know, I'm like starting to design this virtual fish tank with all these parameters that allows you to kill the fish over and over again you know, let people fail in interesting ways, but none of that would have, would have existed at all if I hadn't just started really diving in on the content. Like, if I just try to think of the simplest possible thing or try to think of another game that does what I want to do, kind of. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> how, how does any game get created? Like, if you sit down and your goal is you're Sid Meier and you're like, okay, I'm going to make a game about the birth of civilization up through the modern age. Like, how do you start designing that? And we, we actually have a lot, of, a couple, like, three really interesting answers to that problem. If you look back when civilization was created, there was civilization, then there was Chris Crawford, who made a game called Guns and Butter, and then there was Danny Buttonberry, who made a game called Modem Wars, and all three of them were essentially going after the same design space, and you can see like these wildly divergent games that lead in really interesting directions, but all three of them, you wouldn't ever identify them as being the same concept. But yeah, I don't know, so that's the, the long answer to that. Okay. I think uh, we're going to get ready to wrap up because we've, you've given okay. me your time generously. We're almost at like an hour and a half. So <laughs> a big thank you to you. And people can find you at steveswink.com or I think at steveswink on Twitter. They're trying to look you up. Yep. Okay. If you'd like to leave some feedback yeah. or keep up with the news, you can always find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast. And I will actually reply to you <laughs> or Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast. And... If you have not subscribed and you're interested, please do so in the Twitch channel, and there'll be other interviews of a similar nature. But thank you a lot to Steve. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks so much. Internet high five. Yay. High five. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. Thank you, chat. All right. This podcast is a part of the Signals Media All-Star Network. For more information on this and other fine shows, go to SignalsMedia.com. It's okay to stick our stuff in your ears. Really?